Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Out of the Question podcast, where the question, does technology make us smarter, will be addressed. Now, with me to discuss this is Lee Dwegan, and some of you are probably very familiar with him, but if you're not, I will introduce you to him. He is the author of the Bell Mountain series of novels of which I believe there are 13 now, the latest being The Wind from Heaven. He's also a contributing editor for Calcedon's Publications. Lee provides commentary on cultural trends and relevant issues to Christians, along with providing cogent book and media reviews. And for those of you who frequent the Calcedon site, you will see most often Lee under the banner of a movie reviewer or a book reviewer. Lee has his own blog at leedwegan.com. I'll give you that address again at the end. But for now, let me say hi, Lee, and thanks for joining me today. Hi, Andrea. Thanks for inviting me. So the book that we're going to discuss is a book that you reviewed about a month, month and a half ago. And anytime I see a recommendation from someone I respect, one of the first things I do is I go and get the book. Now, in this case, I got the audio version because spending time in the car going places, it's good to have something to stimulate my thinking. And so I heard Mark Bauerlein's book, The Dumbest Generation, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young Americans and Jeopardizes Our Future. Now, you did a review, but it was interesting enough and it whetted my appetite enough to actually go and dive in. And the first thing that I noticed was that being written in 2009, my first thought was, well, how is this relevant to today? And that's how we'll start this off. How is a book, Lee, that was written a lo- over a decade ago, how is it relevant to the things we're facing today? Well, at the moment, I'm reading another book, which is called Hollowed Out by Jeremy Adams, a former America School Teacher of the Year, who says basically everything that Bauerlein says. Bauerlein was more interested in college students. Adams is more interested in high school students. But the thing is, Bauerlein's argument is overwhelming. He has cited hundreds of studies involving tens of thousands of high school and college students, and the findings are always the same. And the book is relevant now in 2021 because everything he said in 2009 is still true, only more so. We have continued down the path that he tried to warn us off. So when listeners hear that the book might be dated, the reason I say that is back in 2008, 2009, 
Facebook hadn't really become very prevalent. So he'll often talk about MySpace. Some of you might not have yeah. any concept of what MySpace is, but it was the first platform where people were engaging with each other, sending pictures, etc. And Google really hadn't established itself quite the way it is now. But Lee, go into a little bit about his analysis of what happens when people learn in a digital mode rather than in what we would call a traditional mode of learning? Well, that's easy. They don't learn. Or rather, they don't learn as much as they would or used to learn. All sorts of factors come into play. For instance, attention span. It's just always so easy to click to somewhere else or to read something that's off on the side. Studies have shown that people reading stuff online, for the most part, read only a little bit of it before they're pulled away by something else. So it, it, it just plays hob with the attention span. You have to make a conscious effort to stick to what you're reading or, or you're going to be drifting away like everybody else. I think this actually translates into personal interactions. I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me to be in a conversation with someone and instead of them maintaining themselves in the conversation with me, someone else comes along and it's like they've just clicked off me. You're having a conversation with someone or you're having a meal with someone and something pops up on their phone. And now you're not just dining with them, whoever this other entity that's pinging them or some news item or who's calling them now joins your conversation, except that person doesn't really join. So do you see this translating into our personal interactions with people? Oh, sure. We've all seen young people sitting around a table at a pizza parlor, diddling away with their phones. And for each kid, the others might as well not be there. They're not talking to each other. They're not looking at each other. They're farting around with their phones. Yes. We've all seen that. And we know it's so on, online, wherever you go. There's always distraction. So by having emphasis on the visual, I mean, obviously, when you read, there was visual. But when you read and there are no pictures that go along with the text, your mind has to do something very different than what it does when it's being bombarded with images, correct? Yeah, you have to discipline yourself to stay with the written text. I used to teach developmental reading at the college level. Uh, kids would come in with a reading speed of like 150 words a minute, which for them was just torture trying to get through college when you cannot read fast. And they would come out of the course reading four or 500 words a minute and much the better for it. There are things that the, that the eye and the eye muscles must do efficiently in order to read efficiently. And the way you learn to do those things is by reading. Those of us who grew up in households where reading was, well, very important, like, like my house. And my mother had tons and tons of books. And I wanted to read them because I saw that her reading them. But over the years, 
without having been taught, our eyes teach themselves how to read properly. So if you're a habitual reader, your reading speed is not going to need any work because it'll already be up there. Five or 600 words a minute, 700 if you're in a hurry and you don't mind skimming a bit. But to hear, you know, for one thing, it's very hard to find pure text on, online. Mostly what you see is bells and whistles. Right. You see headlines and you see summaries. If you never go much further than that, you'll never even discover that in some cases, the headlines and the summaries have nothing to do with the article. Yeah, that's always a shocking discovery, isn't it? I guess they're figuring that they can communicate. Well, let's put it this way. They know their audience, right? So a headline and a summary, and then the person thinks, I know what I need to know. Yeah, on to something else, which I can do simply by clicking my mouse. Right. Easiest thing in the world. You don't have to get up and go to the bookcase and take out another book. So one of the things he brings up is the fact that there are schools of educators who will try to let the general population think that our current crop of students are more advanced than their predecessors. Yet, Mark Baraline says, we're producing the dumbest generation, which of course is like a play on words of the greatest generation that we've heard with people who grew up during and fought in World War II. Do you subscribe to the idea that the current mode of how people interact with knowledge is producing dummies? Yes, it certainly is. Great big bunches of them, useful idiots. And there's two fallacies that Bauerline dissects that, that come into play here. One is you have all these educators crowing about how smart the, the best and the brightest students are. Man, oh man, our top 5%, they really are the top. Can they ever use computers? Holy cow. And that's all you hear. You don't hear about the other 95% who are falling farther and farther behind. Another thing you encounter is educators singing the praises of classroom gizmos, computers and phones, etc., etc., Many of them are also in the business of selling these devices. They're not educators in classrooms. They're educators who have been hired by technology firms to sing the praises of the product. It's all a big commercial. He points out that especially in younger grades, when asked, children don't like the technology in the classroom. I can't speak to that except to say that one day, just as an experiment with a fifth grade class that I was subbing for, I took their calculators away for the math period. Don't worry, kids, I'm going to give them back. But I want to see what you know without the calculators. They could not do their times tables. You know how you rattle out two times two is four, two times three is six, et cetera, et cetera. They couldn't do that. They had to have the calculators, and they seemed a bit miffed that they weren't able to do these things, that, you know, the innumerable 
generations of kids had done before. Now they can't do them. I do tutoring, and I've noticed that that is the crux of the matter for students who are now either making their way from public school to homeschool or public school to a Christian day school. They really and truly rely on calculators. And so if they're not, I mean, they must have been taught calculators are, and they'll always be there. And since a lot of them exist on smartphones, I can Mm -hmm. see how the students would believe that. But what happens if cell towers go down? What happens if the electricity isn't working? What's left for people if they rely on a device to give them knowledge? Not much. You know, public, public education was never anything to write home about. Going back to the beginning, I, and let me uh, here introduce Rush Dooney's book, The Messianic Character of American Education. This is an eye-opener. It's the history of public education, and most of it is told by the persons who created that history, who created public education. Rush Dooney quotes them at great length. And you see, education itself, as we understand the term, was always very far from their minds. They were always much more interested in achieving socio-political goals. And so as time went by, the overriding basic job number one lesson of public education was conformity. They taught you that your age group peers are the most important people in your lives, much more important than family. You got to impress all these other kids and you do that by conforming. That was back when public education was, quote, good, unquote. It has not gotten any better. As a matter of fact, then it sort of was clouded in semi-religious patriotic terms. So Mm -hmm. students would learn patriotic poems, patriotic songs. My father, who grew up in he was born in 1911. So he was in schools through the teens of the 1900s and the twenties remembers learning the Lord's prayer and the 23rd Psalm and the 10 commandments in school. So I would have to say, based on what you said, and of course, Rush Dooney's thesis, that these folks were patient. They were willing to give people what they thought they were getting. And we now know that in state run schools, There isn't going to be a recitation of the Lord's Prayer, the 23rd Psalm, or the Ten Commandments. People want to trust their government. They want to trust these schools that they pay for. And let's fast forward a bit to 2020 and 2021 and the, the, the King COVID rules. All of a sudden, all these kids are at home doing remote learning. Finally, finally. Parents got to see and hear what their kids were being taught. And an awful lot of them don't like it. Yes. And I'm dealing with lots of them who want out and want help. And I'm with a group of other homeschool mom veterans who are helping them do just that. But it's not just their children who are behind. In many cases, because they were publicly educated themselves, they're behind 
and they don't have a biblical philosophy of education. They just have the idea you pass the test and you go on to the next thing. Or once you pass the test, you never have to open up another book again. If you're done with school, you're done. And that happens all too often in the Western world. I'm done with high school. I don't ever have to read again. I'm done with college. I don't ever have to read again unless it's something that I absolutely have to read for my job. As a writer of books, I'm never happy to hear that. Right. But I've heard so many people say almost as if they were bragging about it. Oh, I never read. I don't read anymore. Right. And in the book, he stresses the fact that, I don't know if he ever says it, but readers are leaders. And pleasure reading, the reading that you do that's not quote-unquote required, is actually where most good learning takes place in the building of your vocabulary, in the building of understanding your past, and then your present in terms of the past. Speak a little bit about that. Well, this is absolutely true. Reading, if you read habitually and omnivorously, you just learn so much. You are connected to mankind's past, the the things that we thought we knew and found out that we didn't know, the process of acquiring knowledge, our history, our traditions, our religion. When I was in high school, I sometimes thought that they were purposely trying to put us off reading with the required reading that they had for us. For instance, Ivanhoe. It wasn't until just a few years ago, and I'm 72, just a few years ago, I thought, I think I'll give Ivanhoe another shot. It couldn't possibly be as bad as I remember it. So I read Ivanhoe as Walter Scott wrote it. There was very little resemblance between that and the book that they called Ivanhoe and had us read in high school. It was the book with all the guts removed from it. It was, it was, a travesty of a book. Walter Scott must have been spinning in his grave a mile a minute. (laughs) Right. And see, most people wouldn't know that because it wouldn't say abridged on it. But even No, it didn't. Right. Even with abridged versions, people used to get the study notes. So I'll Mm -hmm. get the, I think they were called cliff notes at the time. Cliff notes, indeed. Right. And you would find out, all the things that were likely to appear on a test. And now, Mm -hmm. as I did a little research for our conversation, they have video cliff notes now where you can go to YouTube and get what you need to know so you can pass the test. And I often wonder, Lee, I mean, as an author, you can speak to this. Do you think William Shakespeare wrote his plays or Walter Scott wrote his novel so people could be tested on it? (laughs) I am sure that never, ever occurred to either one of them. They wrote their their works because they loved them. And they had a point to convey. This was a labor of love. They they had a point to convey. Yeah, I want to show people what happens when, when a leader gets too powerful and too caught up with himself, and you have Julius Caesar. Or with the real Ivanhoe, as Scott wrote it, hey, you know, those Middle Ages weren't really all that much fun. 
especially if you were a commoner or a laboring person or a Jew, that wasn't much fun at all. A little hard on the nights, too, when it came to handy strokes. So you have to figure that the dumbing down of literature probably was not accidental. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't want to attribute bad motives to people whom I've never met. But, uh, you know, people are lazy. Students are lazy. They want to get through school doing a minimum. And so, oh boy, Cliff Notes. Oh boy, abridged novels. Now they replaced, they replaced abridged reading with no reading. Right. Even movies, you know, uh, anybody can sit and watch a movie, right? I remember they were showing in one of the schools To Kill a Mockingbird. Classic film. Kids are in it, so kids should be able to relate to it. Nobody wanted to see it. All these fifth graders, I'd say, why don't you want to see it? This is an important movie. It won a lot of awards. Well, yeah, but it's old. You know, it, it, it wasn't created in the last seven days, so, you know, who needs it? The uh, digital age has greatly enhanced the prejudice against anything that wasn't invented yesterday. Right. You, you're going to love this. Uh, the teacher left an assignment. Write a little essay about your favorite movie. Would you believe every boy in that class wrote his essay about Bride of Chucky. I'm going to huh? give you I'm going to give you credit for not knowing what Bride <laughs> of Chucky is. I don't know. <laughs> All right, this this was a, a horror film franchise. Chucky was an ugly horrible little doll that went around slashing people with a knife. In a Bride of Chucky, he gets to meet another horrible little doll that goes around slashing people with a knife. And every boy in that class said, yeah, yeah, Bride of Chucky, that was my favorite, favorite movie. Even kids who hadn't seen it yet. At, at that point, one is tempted to just say, I wonder if the Yankees are on today. I think I'll go home and turn on the TV. Yeah. So another thing the author brings out is that the expectations of educators have truly diminished. And instead of holding the position of being a mentor to students. In other words, let students know there's stuff they don't know, and a mentor will help them have an, mm -hmm. an appetite. Instead, current mentors get down to the kids' levels, and probably a lot of those boys on their favorite movie got good marks, whether or not the probably teacher did. Well, I'm sure you know that that this goes back a long ways. This goes back to the 60s. You know, when I was in college, Vietnam War, anti-war movement, big craze, teachers went out of their way, professors went out of their way to praise the students as the wisest, noblest, best, most moral generation ever. And it was all manipulation to get the students to align with the professor's politics. The difference between then and now is that what was done cynically and politically back then is now done as a matter of course. A lot of these teachers 
shame on them, actually believe that their kids are smarter than they are. So, so they yes them to death. Right. There's a part in the book that to me was very telling. Some independent surveyors went and talked to high school teachers and asked them how prepared their students were for higher education. And if I'm not mistaken, the percentage thought that 40 to 50% were ready. But when they went and asked college professors, their percentage was 5% that students were ready. So you even have this dumbing down of teaching, thinking they're doing a great job. Yeah, we're doing great. Kid said hello to me yesterday. It must be good. My brother-in-law was a college English professor. He would certainly agree with that statement. He'd sometimes show us some of the papers that students handed in to him. It's pitiful. No vocabulary, no spelling, poor grammar, muddled thinking, if you could even call it thinking. One of the commonest mistakes was to think that abortion was two words. Oh my. I had a abortion. And that's going back a ways, too. These these problems are all very deep-seated. And the thing about all the gizmos that they're bringing into the classroom is they exacerbate the situation by adding whole new magnitudes of distraction. Studies show that most kids, when they're supposed to be studying online, like at home, supposed to be doing homework, reading, ha-ha, Maybe they'll read, maybe they'll study, maybe they'll do some homework for five minutes, and then it's off to the chat room, off to the video game, off to the YouTube clips. They can see who's up on the Tide Pod Challenge. Very little learning takes place, largely because of the overabundance of distraction. It would take a special kind of discipline that most young people have not yet acquired to stay with it and actually do what they were supposed to do. Temptation is just too strong. Well, I think we should admit that there is an addiction quality to this. Oh, yes. What happens if somebody inadvertently leaves their phone at home? It's as though they left Uh, their brain. uh, I left my phone at home. Yeah, panic ensues. Right. So as a message to families who are either homeschooling now or determined that they're going to homeschool, would you not say that the most important thing is to make sure their children can read effectively, so to focus on the foundational skills, and then rather than look for curriculum on this or curriculum on that, supply them with tried and true novels and books and biographies and primary source materials so they get a chance to see that knowledge has not begun with the 20th or 21st century. If you read well and read a lot, there's nothing hardly that you can't learn. Reading is the key to it all. And And if you can't read, you're not going to learn hardly anything especially reading the scripture, which, of course, I think Mm -hmm. may be one reason why the production of functionally illiterate people opens the door to 
have somebody else tell them what right and wrong is rather than go to God's word. And you know who that's somebody going to be. It's going to be your, your beloved college professor or a politician or a crook or an entertainer. There you go. <laughs> Moral education brought to you by Hollywood. What could go wrong? And oftentimes when Hollywood produces a film based on a book, I know when my children were young, if they wanted to see the film, the requirement was they had to read the book first. And oftentimes they'd say, even with like the Narnia movies, because mm -hmm. they had read the Narnia books, they'd say, oh, it wasn't even close to as good as the book. So by reason of the fact that you're not going to have an eight hour movie, the editors have to make some editorial decisions. But oftentimes my children said they missed the essence of the book when they translated it to film. I was always shocked as a kid when I watched a movie right based on a book and they changed everything. They even changed that. They even changed things for, for actual histories, movies that are supposed to be about real people and real things. When I was a little boy, I was very interested in pirates and read everything I could get about pirates. Along comes Million Dollar Movie with Blackbeard the Pirate. And I wound up asking my mother, what is this? Blackbeard didn't die because somebody buried him in the sand and the tide came in over his head. He died in a battle. What, what, what did they do this for? And she said, it's poetic license. I didn't understand that either. I think we'd call it revisionist history now. <laughs> <laughs> or, or something less polite. Yes. Even movies that will say based on a true story. You watch based the on film. is the key word. Yes. You watch the film and you get a sneaking suspicion that there was probably a Christian underpinning to what these people said and did. And sure enough, if you investigate, you find out that's true, but it doesn't end up being in the based on the true story movie. You, you do wonder what goes on in the heads of Hollywood screenwriters. Years ago, there was a TV series on the life of Napoleon. And they asserted that Napoleon was an epileptic, which he was not. No way, no how, no epilepsy, thank you. But in the, in the TV series, he was an epileptic. And my wife's co-workers were very fond of that series. And they said, look, if he wasn't an epileptic, they, would, they wouldn't have said so on TV. It's on TV, man. So it must be true. And now it's on the Internet, so it must be true. Exactly. And when it comes to quality control, you'll find almost none of that on the Internet as a whole. There's good stuff cheek by jowl with worthless stuff. And it's, it's up to you to be able to tell the difference which you won't be able to do if you haven't learned anything. Wikipedia, a lot of people think Wikipedia is a reliable encyclopedia. However, we know at Calcedon that yep. no matter how many times we correct what they say about Rush Dooney, it always goes back to somebody else's take on it. And we being 
the people who continue the organization he started. It doesn't matter. But I think a lot of people don't realize that encyclopedias were like that too. They always had a worldview governing what they considered important. Yeah, well, as, as a child, I never picked up on that because I hadn't lived long enough. And of course, when Christianity and the reading of the Bible is eliminated purposely, there isn't another source of information that enters in because the only book that's a living word that's able to change people is God's word, to change them at the core. And so it's no surprise that that's the thing that can't be discussed in state schools. My family saw to it that their kids were raised with Bible stories, and of course the Bible itself, but we had lots of books of Bible stories. I remember being a, a very small boy looking at the story of Joseph in one of these books, and picture Joseph's brothers plotting and scheming against him, and that made a strong impression on me. We had, lot, we had lots of Bible books in our house. I don't know if that's the case anymore. I fear it may not be. Or there are lots of Bibles in a house, but they're not picked up and read. And a lot of people will resort to looking at the Bible, reading the Bible online. But as you pointed out earlier, the difference between holding something and actually reading it and looking at it on a screen, it produces a different effect and a different retention. Yeah, they, they don't retain as well as if they were, were just simply reading as we know reading. And, you know, with the Bible, you can't just read it once and remember everything. You have to read it regularly because there's always something new that you hadn't noticed before. And there's always a new insight that maybe you didn't have before. If you read something online, you can't always access it again. No, you might lose, well, you'll lose track. Can't very well stick a bookmark in it. My Bible's full of bookmarks. So let me ask you this, and this is kind of steering away from Caroline's book per se, because he doesn't really bring in a biblical perspective. No, that he much. doesn't. I, I could not guess what his religious opinions are. Right. But I think it's important for us to realize that since the statists have had the schools for so long, maybe we should rethink the curriculum itself. Like, do you think that to be a good citizen, to be a good father, to be a good mother, to be a good person who, whatever profession, that every single person needs to know geometry and trigonometry, or does the forcing that on <laughs> students end up making them hate the subject rather than thrive in it? One size fits all. That's public education. Everybody has to take the same courses. In the long run, no, no learning should go to waste. But see, one of the consequences of having a general public that's so poorly educated, so deficient in critical thinking, so utterly unable to distinguish truth from nonsense, we're hearing more and more lies 
from people who are supposed to tell us the truth, from people who are charged with maintaining the good order and efficient function of our country, we get lies. We get nonsense. We get claptrap. And nobody knows the difference anymore. That's scary. As a political scientist, I say that it's not possible to have a foundation of idiots as, as the foundation for a constitutional republic. It won't work. Ignoramuses are fit only to be led and herded and told what to do. So, Lee, are you hopeful or do you think this train has gone too far along the wrong direction on the track? Some people think I'm a huge pessimist. Because, yeah, the train has gone way far on this wrong track. But what hopes I have, I ground on the judge of all the earth. This is God's planet. I don't believe he's going to let idiots wipe out the human race after Christ went up on the cross to save us. Now, I don't know what God is going to do about this mess, but I'm pretty sure he's going to do something. And we, as his people, who are charged not only to live faithfully, but to make disciples of those we come in contact, need to mm -hmm. operate in faith that his timetable is a good timetable and he doesn't have to conform to our timetable that we conform to his. You know, I imagine God sometimes listening to the earth and shaking his head and wondering, what was so hard to understand about male and female created he them? I thought I had made that pretty clear. And now listen, now look, 55 genders. Oh, I'm so sorry I used the binary pronoun. This is folly. We are adrift on a sea of folly. And uh, I pray that, that, that God will deliver us. Yes. Eventually he will. I don't know how. He hasn't confided his plans to me. Well, in a sense, he has. He's given us his word, and it's always good to get a correct diagnosis. Um, I've often said one of the cruelest things you can do to someone is if they have a disease or an illness and everybody agrees, let's not tell them. We don't want them to know. That's the last thing that would, I yeah. would ever find preferable. That's not that good. Yeah. Having the diagnosis may not be pleasant. It might be like a punch in the gut, but it gives you the opportunity to say, all right, what do I need to do? Even if whatever the diagnosis is that it's considered terminal, your time here on earth still can be used to the honor and glory of God. And, and that is the mindset that I believe we need to communicate to people. We should also make sure that everybody understands, including ourselves, that the truth has not been hidden from us. It has been proclaimed. It has been written down. It's been published in a thousand languages. We do have God's word, and we do know what is right, 
and we do know where to go to get the truth. There, there's medicine in the Bible that can heal this world. Absolutely. So, Lee, tell us a little bit about your blog at leedwegan.com. How do you decide the subjects that you're going to tackle there? Well, I have kind of a mixed bag. I do cover news, news which I think we need to know about so that we can somehow arrive at countermeasures. Most of the news I publish is news of social deterioration, political chicanery, educational malpractice. I don't do this out of any sardonic amusement for myself. I just think we need to be up on what's what. I also start every day by posting a hymn. I take hymn requests. I post prayer requests. We have a lot of those. I post nature videos because I think we ought to remind ourselves that nature is God's stuff and God's stuff is great and we should enjoy it. And I provide a few features for comic relief because relief is necessary and a good laugh is a gift from God. And how often do you post on your website or your blog? I I try to post six or seven times a day usually ending the blogging day with some kind of cat or dog or horse video (laughs) as a reminder that that there are still good things for us to like and love and cherish. Indeed. Do you have on your blog or your website a list of books that you think people may have overlooked or had overlooked in their own education but would be valuable for them? You know, I don't have that. And now that you mention it, it seems like a good idea. Okay. And I do a lot of book reviews and a lot of movie reviews, many of which wind up being published by Calcedon. Yes. If I think I've done a good one, I send it in. Yes. And we usually publish it. So, yeah, I think especially for parents who are now sufficiently convinced that they're responsible for their children and the educational framework that they provide is going to be a big contributor to the future. I think your suggestions for old and new books, old and new films would be useful because one of the things that parents often have a hard time grasping is that they should be in charge of their children's education and they don't have to go to somebody's curriculum guide. They need to decide, okay, these children were given to me so that I would steward their lives. Now, what's good to steer them towards? And people like you would be a helpful resource. I'll have to to think of some way to do that, how to set it up and, and keep it up to date. Yes. Well, I hope you that, do. That's a pretty good idea. Okay. And, and there's no charge for that idea. It's free. Good. <laughs> because I don't, I don't charge people for viewing my blog. There you go. So we're, we're both storing up treasures in heaven, hopefully. Now, before we go, because I mentioned at the outset, this Bell Mountain series of yours for people who are unfamiliar 
Would you give an overview of what Bell Mountain is all about? Okay, Bell Mountain is a series of, of books. The action in all the stories takes place in an imaginary world, fantasy world. These are fantasies. And the whole thing starts with ringing a bell on top of a mountain that was placed there over a thousand years ago. Most people don't believe it really exists. But King Ozias put the bell up there because the prophet told him, if you do this someday, the bell will be rung and God will hear it. The bell does get rung. If you read beyond book one, you'll know that. I'm not spoiling the other 12 books. The, the stories are focused on the idea that these people, various nations in this imaginary world, need to reconnect to God because they've lost that connection over the past thousand years. They still have a form of religion, but it's it has no soul. It's just something that they do because it's expected. They, they have a lot to learn and a lot to rediscover. So God shakes up their world a lot for them to learn from it and learn they do. It's in a way a history of a world that isn't real. And as a history, it doesn't have any logical stopping point. So I can just go on and on. I'm thinking of maybe going back into the past, if I'm permitted to continue writing these, give people a better idea of what it used to be like in this world. They have a lot of adventures. You know, there's always there's always somebody cooking up mischief. They have a lot of fearsome enemies to overcome. They're ordinary people. They're not superheroes. There's no magic. No wizards, no elves, just ordinary people who hear God's word and try to keep it, who try to be faithful, to do the right thing, and who rely on whatever strength God can give them to accomplish the work that they must do. I know it's a big hit because when I used to do homeschool conventions, we would have young people come up asking, when's the next book? I've already read the other books, sometimes multiple times, and they were very hungry mm -hmm. for the next installment. And Calcina has always build your work as biblically faithful fiction in as much as nothing that exists in scripture, like the wages of sin is death or, you know, the earth is the Lord's, you don't contradict that in your fiction. So it's a, I wouldn't call it a safe book that, you know, Christian parents can say this is safe because you're not going to hide the realities of evil, but they don't have to worry about an alternative or an alternate uh, religious view being infused there subtly. I, when I started this series, I did make a cons uh a conscious decision to allow nothing in my books that is not allowed in the Bible. The Bible is one of the models for my novels. So 
nobody in the Bible can actually do magic of the kind that you see in everybody else's fantasy. So no magic in my books. Yes. Well, I would really recommend that anybody who is looking for you know, to balance their reading, their, their biographies of people in the past, their current events, but having, and it's not escape, but a relief by reading novels, whether it's Ivanhoe or the Bell Mountain series or a combination thereof, it's good to learn by imagining things that aren't right in front of you right now. All right, Lee, I need to wrap this up right now. People, you can... Find out more about him at leedwigan.com. That's L-E-E-D-U-I-G-O-N.com. And this will be a case where technology will help you be smarter. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate you spending the time okay. today. And listeners, you can make comments or offer suggestions for future episodes by contacting us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.